Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Who am I? You know what? As soon as I wrote the question, I'm like, I know someone's going to do that to me. <laughs> the question, who am I? How you answered that question will shape your life. When I was in high school, I got it in my head that I wanted to be the lead singer of a band. Thank you. You've heard me sing. Uh, yeah, so it wasn't even because I loved music so much. I just did some math, and I was like, girls like musicians, so if I become a musician, girls will like me. Made sense, so I got this brilliant plan on my head that that's what I was going to do, and I went full in. I came up with a name for the band. I designed a logo, which was terrible. I started writing songs, but I don't know anything about music, so they're really just poems. I recruited band members. I started having band practice all without considering the fact that my singing voice sounds like a drunken rhinoceros battling a rabid gorilla inside a trash compactor. <laughs> I have no rhythm. I'm tune deaf, and I have struggle to clap on beat. Like, my wife is amazed all the time when we, like, a song will be clapped. She's like, how do you miss the beat? Like, every time. It's a gift. I'm that bad at music. Never even thought about it. It's like, I'm just going to start a band, and it'll just be easy. It'll be fun. Sometimes we look for who we are in all the wrong places. And that's what makes the book of Ephesians so important. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Last week, Pastor Rick got us through two whole verses. I gave him three, but he comes to me and he's like, I can't handle three. That's just way too much for me. I'm only going to do two and you're going to have to take the third one. So we're going to start in verse 3 and we're going to go through verse 10. If you are an English major or a grammar person, you're going to hate this so much, okay? Because this is the longest sentence in the Bible. It is one from verses 3 to 14. It's one long, unpunctuated, run-on sentence. This is why I never learned grammar, okay? And be like, look, if the infallible and errant word of God can have 11 verses for one run-on sentence, why do I need to learn where to put a comma? This is an exciting, I love this book. It's an exciting, uh, it's an exciting book. We're going to spend three months in it. And you may wonder, how do you do three months in a letter that has only six chapters? Well, week one, Pastor Rick does two verses. Week two, we're not even going to finish an entire sentence. That's how you do it. Uh, now, Ephesians is a special book. It has been called the Queen of Paul's Epistles and the Divinest Composition of man. Our text is probably the most beautiful and clearest presentation of the gospel in existence. Ephesians is a powerful and a transforming book, even when held against the standard of Scripture. So over the next three months, as we go through this series, I want to challenge you to do something. As we're going through it, not including what we're doing here on Sunday mornings, I want to challenge you to read through Ephesians at least four times. 
Okay? Soak yourself in it. Saturate in it. Go over it again and again. Because when you understand this book, it will change how you see yourself. It will change how you see God. And it will change how you relate to him. Because at the core of Ephesians answers this question, who am I? See, everything that we do, everything that we think, everything we say, it flows out of the foundation of who we are. Activity follows identity. And we call ourselves Christians so often because we, we believe in Jesus and Jesus is a part of our lives, but that's not where we find our identity. We define ourselves in our family, our work, our hobbies, our skills, our sexuality, our successes, our failures, our Enneagram profile. And wherever you define yourself, that thing influences and shapes who you become. See, Christian... It's not a label, a title. It's not a political status or something you post on Facebook. A Christian ultimately isn't just about what you believe. Christian, biblical Christianity is about the core of who you are. So let's dive in. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see that comma? It's not in the original text. That was added who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Okay, so there's a really big mentality shift that we see. In the Old Testament, through 39 books, God is referred to as Father only 14 times. It's just not how you connect with him. God was most high, sovereign, king, holy God, almighty one. When you thought of God, it was always about the infinite nature of his holiness and how he was completely and utterly unapproachable in every way. God was so far removed that you would never dare diminish him by associating yourself with him on a relational level. And then Jesus comes along. And calls God our Heavenly Father 189 times. He is not negating all the things that they called God before. The holiness and the wonder and the majesty of God in His sovereignty. He's not taking that away. What He's demonstrating for us is that God's desire is for us to know Him as our Father. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is where it should end. Uh, the last two words are in love. That should be a part of verse 5. Just so you know, uh, when you read the Bible, the chapters and verses were not there originally. They were written as letters. And then some guy came in later and did it. And I am convinced that he was riding up a mountain on a donkey. So he's just like, oh, first five was over here. And he just missed because like, sometimes like right in the middle of a sentence, like, let's change verses. That makes sense. But this verse is a very pivotal verse. It drops us right in the middle of a theological debate that's going on for about 600 years now. Uh, so it'll probably wrap up anytime soon. But this is a foundational text for understanding how salvation works. And there are multiple sides and people, Christians, going back and forth, arguing and bickering about how this verse should be understand, understood as we drive round and round the theological cul-de-sac that's called systematic theology. 
I say that to tell you there are multiple ways in which this verse can be understood by people who love Jesus and are genuinely, honestly seeking to follow and understand him faithfully. So you know there's other ways to view this verse. I'm just going to go ahead and skip to the right one. This side of the room is going to be a real problem today. <laughs> See, now you got me all completely off my train of thought. <laughs> Come on. All right, so when you are a Christian, you belong to God. On that, everybody agrees. This massive theological debate that people have gone to blows over has nothing to do with who is saved and everything to do with how they became saved. So the question, how did you become saved? How did you become a child of God? Well, the most common answers we give are, I made a decision to follow Jesus, right? We got the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I'm not going to sing it for you. You're welcome. I invited Jesus into my heart. I repeated a sinner's prayer. I got baptized. No, 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 and then nope with a whole side of no going along with it. You belong to God because God chose you. You didn't choose him, he chose you. Now hold on a second, wait, just a minute here. I have free will. I make choices on my own. I'm a big boy. I picked out my own outfit this morning. I follow Jesus because I choose to follow Jesus, and you can't take that away from me. You're right. I cannot take that from you. Mostly because Jesus already did. John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John 15, 16. You didn't choose me. I chose you. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. God chose us to be saved. Shall we continue? We shall. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Over and over and over, the Bible repeats this point. We belong to God because he chose us to be his. It was God's choice, not our choice, that resulted in our salvation. Now, the next question from that becomes, well, when did this great choosing happen? One of my favorite things that Christians say is this little phrase, got saved, Right? Now, this is like, let me be clear. This is not a judgment. I'm not throwing stones. I've used this phrase so many times. Most of like, I got saved when I was 11. I got saved at this church. I got saved. That's great. It's just it's, that it's wrong. You didn't get saved. You were saved. What you're describing is the moment of your conversion. It's when you received that salvation. It's when you became aware of that salvation. But when you were chosen by God, you were saved. So when were you chosen? Well, what's the text say? Before the foundation of the earth, before time began, before even Pastor Mark was born. That's how far back this thing goes. All right, you've got like us today living in the 21st century. You've got Jesus, Moses, Noah, dinosaurs. Somewhere before that, you've got the birth of Pastor Mark and then the foundation of the earth. Right? Like, that's why he's so wise. He's seen a lot of stuff. <laughs> I told him I was going to do that, so don't be mad at me. Before you ever existed, God 
chose you. Wait. If God chose me, and he made the decision, and he made the choice, and you're just saying everything's predestined, and it's predetermined, it doesn't matter what I say or what I do, so I can just live how I want and do what I want, right? No. When you receive Jesus, when you surrender to him, you receive the Spirit of God, and no one who has the Spirit of God intentionally, willfully sins against God. God did not choose you so that you would grow in sin. He chose you so you would grow in him. Look at what it says. God chose us so that we would be holy and blameless. If you ever end up on big fancy word jeopardy, the word for this is sanctification. It is not that you're perfect. It's not that you don't make mistakes or still have struggles with sin. What it means is that your view and attitude towards sin are changed because the Spirit of God dwells within you and begins to mold your heart into the image of God. And so now, rather than indulging in sin, you resist sin. Rather than worshiping sin, you hate sin. Rather than looking at sin as something that will bring you pleasure and joy, you look at it as an unnatural part of yourself. You battle against it, you fight against it, you struggle. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose those battles, but it is not something that you willfully, intentionally continue to live in. Verse 5. This which should begin in love, but it starts, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God didn't choose you because you were smart or funny or you follow rules really good. It wasn't because of something that you deserved or worthy or entitled of. It wasn't based on your religious activity or your performance in any way. So God's like standing up at the heavenly craps table just rolling dice for our salvation? No. It's not random. God's choice is based on God's purpose. What's God's purpose? simple. You and I were not born children of God. We are not by nature His. And the heart of the gospel is the story of our adoption. Where God, through Jesus, brings us into his family and makes us his children. Why? What is his grand purpose and motivation? In love. God chose you because he loved you. God chose you because he wanted you to be his. Four years ago, uh, my wife and I adopted our son, Rowan. If you've been here for a little while, you may have been a part of that journey with us. Uh, but the process is long. Right? There's training, there's working, there's effort, there's waiting, there's preparing, all this stuff in this journey. And then one day, we get a call. That the woman who had chosen us was in labor, so we rushed to the hospital. Uh, Rowan was born five weeks early, so he's this little preemie peanut in the NICU. And they put him in this little table bed thing where he's surrounded by laser tag lights and he's covered more wires than a NASA computer. 
we go in, we're standing over this little space bed, and he reaches up and he grabs Erica's finger. And from that moment, she's been wrapped around his. Like, I watched it happen. I'm like, well, this kid is never going to hear the word no. I, just, I know that right now. He's not going to have any idea what it means. And I remember holding him for the first time. And all of a sudden, it was real. Everything we've been longing for, hoping for, after all the waiting and the working, I was finally holding my son. See, adoption doesn't happen by accident. It's an intentional, willful choice to take a child that has no biological relationship with you and to love them as if they did. We loved him before he was born. We wanted him before he was born, we worked for him before he ever existed and we waited and we longed for him and then that day finally comes where we get to hold him and here he is, this child that we've been longing for for so long and I don't even know if there are words to describe the kind of joy that filled our hearts. I want you to understand something. That's you. God loved you before you were born. Before you existed, he wanted you. And all throughout human history, he waited patiently and he worked, laying out the path so that you could be his. And it was not easy because sin made orphans of us all. And the penalty, the price that sin demanded for us to be redeemed was high. And God, he paid it. Without a second thought, without a moment's hesitation, he paid your price and my price so that we would no longer be children of sin, orphaned by sin, but we would be his children adopted into his family through Jesus. So that he could hold you in his arms, his precious child, whom he loved. The center of the gospel is the story of our adoption. Church, this is not an idea. This is our identity. Jesus tries to make this clear to us over 189 times. God is our Father. Not a broken, imperfect, abusive, or absent Father. Because right? some of us, we struggle with this image because of who our earthly Father was. And we got baggage, and we got trauma, and we got pain because of that. But if you look behind all that your father was or wasn't, what you'll find is that you have a crystal clear picture in your heart of everything a father should be. God is all of that and more. Some of you have a great relationship with your dad. You would, he inspired you, he took care of you, provided for you, you look up to him. Man, I would, he's the gold standard. And you've put him up on a pedestal that all others get compared to. God is all of that and more. Who we are can never be some aspect, some part or portion of our life. It's so much 
bigger. And when you understand whose you are, you begin to know who you are. You're not a believer. You're a child. You're not a rule follower. You're a child. You're not a sinner saved by grace. You're a child. You're not a mess. You're a child. You're not religious. You're a child. Everything that we say, that we do, that we think, it flows from who we are and the core of who you are above all things is a child of God. Verse 7. In him we have been redeemed through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The price of your adoption was the blood of Jesus shed on the cross so that you could be forgiven and receive the grace and love of God which he has lavished upon us. This is what parents do. This is like all good parents. What you do with your children is you lavish love upon them, right? You do everything for them. Let's just ask the question, what do they do for you? Nothing. Right? They drain you, they wear you out, they're messy, they don't listen, they cry a lot, and they never let you sleep. Right? Children are the reason that men go bald. Right? You spend so much time going, oh, and then one day it's like, why, this strip is always the first part to go? Right? Then one day you reach up, there's nothing else to grab, so you just shave the whole thing and say, it was a choice. <laughs> Children are demanding, they're selfish. Like, when was the last time your kids said, Mom, Dad, like, you work really hard and you do a lot, but I can see that you're tired. So why don't you just go in your room and rest and have a nice day? I'm just going to stay out here and play really quietly in this little space so that you can rest because I know you need it. Never in the history of ever has that happened. Not once. Right? Because it never ends. Children make the Energizer bunny look like a lazy bum. It's like you're 19 hours into being awake. You're like, I just got to put you to bed. They're overtired. They clearly need it. Lord help you. You try to put them to bed. They'll scream so loud the neighbors call the police. But what do you do? You lavish love upon them. Not because of what they do for you. But because of who they are to you. Don't miss this. Religion says... You're imperfect, and God is disappointed. He had all these hopes and dreams for what you would be and what you would do, and you just keep letting him down over and over again. And so most of us, a lot of times, we just walk through life with this baggage of guilt and shame because we know we're not good enough and will never be good enough. And how often do we look at God like he's just sort of putting up with us? Like we believe in our hearts, he's annoyed and he just tolerates us. Anybody ever feel that? Some of you are honest. What Paul says here, 
Before the foundations of the earth, he loved you. Before the time began, he wanted you. He planned and chose to adopt you as his. So that in your darkest days, through your struggles and your failures and your hypocrisies, through all the times we get it wrong, no matter how often we stumble and we fall, no matter how broken we think we are, he's not just patient. He is forgiving. And he pours out upon you his love and his grace, which he lavishes upon us. That means he pours it out, and he pours it out again and again, and then he just keeps pouring out that love and grace, and it is endless, and it is boundless, and it is relentless, so that all that sin and guilt and shame, as it bubbles up in our lives, it's just constantly washed away in this lavish outpouring of love and grace. So maybe you're here, and you are struggling because you can't seem to get your act together. And you keep making the same boneheaded mistakes. And you just believe in your heart that God is disappointed in you. Listen. God does not regret saving you. He's not standing up there in heaven looking down every time you make a mistake going, ah, should have picked somebody else. I remember when Rowan started learning to walk. He stumbled and he fell a lot. And I am a wildly imperfect and incredibly sinful human being. You know what I never felt? Anger. Not once disappointment. At no point as I'm watching him learn to walk as he stumbles and falls, am I getting frustrated like, man, what is your problem? It's not rocket science. Put one foot in front of the other and just move, you dummy. Never. Because every time he stumbles and every time he falls, I'm not looking at his imperfection. I'm looking at my son whom I love. If you are in Christ, God is not looking at your mistakes. He's not seeing your sins. He's not focused on your failures. When he looks at you, he sees his child whom he loves. He is not disappointed in you. He is not tolerating your existence. He is lavishing his love and grace upon you. God, he desires and longs for you. He has worked, he has waited, he has prepared for you. This is the heart of the gospel. That God has called us to be his out of his great desire for us, not because of our perfection or our incredible lifestyle or how wonderful we were, but because of his great love for you, he has called and worked to adopt you into his family, to be his child. He's not disappointed. He loves you. hope that we have is not in the quality of our life, but in Him. Because church, I have good news for you. 
Jesus says. Wow, that's the great big surprise. You were dumb, didn't realize you were that dumb. I've heard that before. Listen, Jesus saves, not you. Not your religious activity or some magical prayer. Not the quality of your performance or some invitation of Jesus into your heart. Jesus saves. It's not based on your knowledge or how well you can score on a theology test. Like, it does not matter if you read Eusebius' ecclesiastical history of the church for fun, or if you would, like, hey, when you said systematic theology earlier, I'm pretty sure you made up both those words. It doesn't matter which side of the spectrum you're on. The truth is the same. Jesus saves. You don't have to understand how it all works. All you have to do is place your faith in him. See, I think where we get tripped up is as a society, we confuse believing that with believing in. Right? Believing that God exists, believing that Jesus died on a cross and rose again, it's like believing the sky is blue or that water is wet. It means nothing because it changes nothing. Belief that is passive. It has no influence or transforming effect in your life. It's just a thought. Believing in is when you place your trust, your hope, your life in the hands of Jesus. It's like this. Rowan loves going to the pool. And one of his favorite things to do is to go to the deep end, stand at the edge, and jump to me. He knows he can't swim. He knows that if I don't catch him, if I don't scoop him out of that water, he's in a real bad way because he cannot swim. He cannot get himself back up to the surface. He knows he has no hope if I don't catch him. He doesn't understand buoyancy. He doesn't understand gravity. He doesn't know how or why it is that I'm capable of catching him. He jumps not because he believes that I'm there, but because he has faith in his Father that I will not let him fall. His belief in changes how he lives. That's salvation. That's the moment where we receive the adoption that Jesus has called us to where we become a child of God and receive his spirit is that moment where we place our faith, our belief in Jesus, where we take our hope, our dreams, our faith, our trust, and our lives, and we place all of ourselves in the hands of Jesus. Some of you are here and you have never done that. Maybe you've been at the pool for 50 years and you've just never leapt in to your father in the deep end. Maybe you've been here at the pool, you just arrived. You've walked to the edge, you've looked at the water, you know you can't swim, but your father is there with his arms out. It's okay, jump to me and I'll catch you. Some of you have never made that declaration. You've never made that leap. 
you've never truly placed the trust of your life in Jesus. So we're going to do something a little different this morning. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. And I'm going to pray in just a minute here. I'm not asking you to close your eyes and bow your heads because that makes it extra spiritual, but because I want people to have the freedom to respond without being concerned with what other people might think or say if they look around. If you have never made that leap, never truly placed your trust in Jesus of your own accord, not something your parents did for you, not some magical words that you said that you didn't understand what they meant. If you have never truly taken that leap from the edge of the pool into the hands of Jesus, trusting in him, and you're ready to do that, while I pray, I'm just going to ask you to hold your hand up in the air. We're going to have some people that are going to come down. They're going to have an orange card. When I'm done praying, they're going to hand it to you, and then we're going to ask you to meet us. Just come back to the Connection Center afterwards. If somebody doesn't come to you, just come to the Connection Center afterwards. I'd love to talk with you further about that. But I'm going to pray. Just ask you to hold your hand up. Reach your hand in the air and hold your hand in the air if you've never made that decision and you're ready to do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you are, for the love and the life that you give us, for the hope that we have in you, that you chose us before we were ever in existence, before we were born, before we knew anything about you, that you chose us to be yours, to be loved and to be yours. But give us the strength and the courage to leap into your arms, to place our trust and our hope in you, that we would find our identity and our place in you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen. Uh, if you had your hand up or if you didn't raise your hand but you want to make that choice, I'm going to be in the Connection Center at the end of service here when the song is done. If you just bring the orange card, if you got it or if you didn't, we have more in the back here. Just please come to the Connection Center afterwards. I'd love to just talk with you and pray with you about that. We're going to stand and we're going to worship and celebrate our Heavenly Father.